on this episode of Up the Mountain. There's this whole misconception that you can be anything you want to be and do anything. That's not true. I mean, we're all given a measure of success. We're all given talent. You know what? I could jump higher than some people. But the majority of people are not successful because they're not doing what they're built to be successful in. They're seeing somebody else's success, and they're trying to duplicate it. Well, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Up the Mountain. Uh, This week, we kind of changed directions a little bit as we bring in an Olympic athlete, Hollis Conway, uh, to talk about uh, his version of success and how he sees it. Um, And the last two weeks, we really had people who have gone through more deeper and darker trials, if you will, and Hollis comes from a completely different perspective. And so we hope you enjoy that this week as you listen to it. A little bit about Hollis. He's the Northeast Louisiana Area Director for the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and he was a two-time Olympic athlete winning the silver in 88 and the bronze in 92 in the high jump. You can find out more about Hollis at hollisconway.com. Well, Hollis, thanks for being on the show today. How's it going? It's going great. How's it going for you? Well, it's good now that you're here. I hadn't seen you in, I don't know, what, 10, 12 years, something like that? Yeah. It's amazing how much better looking I've gotten and not so much with you. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Well, why don't you give give the audience a little bit of your background and uh, tell everybody who you are and where you came from. I'm Hollis Conway. Born in Chicago, Illinois, grew up in Shreveport, lived in Lafayette most of my life. I'm now in the great state of Monroe, Louisiana, great city of Monroe. I am a former, well, still am, two-time Olympic medalist in the high jump. Uh, I work with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes for the last 16 years. I cover all of the northeast Louisiana corner. I get to minister to coaches and athletes and students and uh, really most of the community. So I'm just an old, beat-up athlete doing the work of the Lord. Well, Hollis, uh, before you came in, I looked up some of your videos on your website, and uh, I heard you talk about, when you were a baby, the condition that you had, and uh, what was going on there with that? Well, I'm the baby of seven kids, but when I was born, I was stuck up under my mom's rib, and my head got smashed. And the doctors gave me a 50-50 chance of being a normal baby, and... Still debatable right now which 50 I'm in, but I started off with some obstacles there. Grew up a baby of seven kids. We had a lot of uh, unfortunate situations with drug abuse and and mom and dad separation. So I didn't grow up in conditions that were conducive to success and uh, ended up being very successful in my own rights. But um, I'm sure as we get into this, we'll just talk about some of the choices and things that happened in my life that helped me overcome that mountain. One of the things you said in one of your interviews was your grandmother uh, nurtured you at a yes. young age. Yes, my grandmother, she actually lived with us the last 10 years of her life, I think. Uh, she passed away. She was almost 102, so she was ready to go. She was ready to go since 99, <laughs> and, uh, but she used to have to take me twice a day and, and kind of shape my head and, and mold my head, and, and it's just ironic that why she was molding me at the beginning, I was help molding her life at the end. Pretty cool deal. Absolutely. So was she a part of your life all the way through your childhood, or did y'all disconnect when you moved and reconnected later on, or what happened there? You know, in our community, uh, grandma's always a part of her life. Uh, 
you know, we grew up with not a lot of things. And so during the holiday season, especially Christmas, one of the things we always looked forward to was a box from grandma. And it would have, you know, underwear and socks and things in it. But uh, she was the glue that kind of held the family together. Everybody went through her, no matter what you went through and what you were dealing with. Everybody talked to grandma. She was a listening ear. She was consoling. She was a peacemaker. She was a voice of wisdom. And so she's she's kind of been a part of all of our lives. So you're a young child and your parents separate and your dad moves off. Is that correct? Yes. My mom and dad separated when we were in Chicago and he moved to Detroit. And then they reconciled, made up, and we moved to Detroit. And then they broke up and he moved to Louisiana, his brother, went to Southern University, and he was working at the plant in Shreveport. My dad moved there, and then they reconciled, and we all moved to Shreveport. And that must have been a, just a big change, not from just a weather standpoint, but culturally speaking, from Detroit to Shreveport. Well, I was a baby. I don't. I didn't know anything different. I, I, I do know now that I don't ever want to go anywhere where there's snow. <laughs> <laughs> I love the, the weather down here. The culture, you know, for me— you know, in my awareness, moving from South Louisiana to North Louisiana, that was a culture shock. Yeah. Because you're coming from the Cajun culture and Mardi Gras and and a lot of things like that up to hunting territory. And so, but I, I get to travel and I enjoy the differences, but I was such a baby, I didn't know anything. So, so how did the marital strife and the moving and all those things that were going on in your formative years, how did that affect you as a child and... As you become into your teen years, and we're going to talk about your Olympic career in a second, how did that kind of set the bar of where you were going to be um, after you got out of high school and Olympics, that, that struggle that was going on there? Well, when you're, when you're young, and unfortunately, I think this is the case in all communities who struggle with uh, maybe poverty, poverty issues and different things, it's the norm. It's all you know. You don't have anything to compare it with. So it was not like you were really upset or disappointed. It's all you knew. It's the life you live, and you learn to survive in that world. And so it's not uncommon to see single parents as it is today uh, or people in poverty or people on food stamps or pe- drug use. I mean, you live in a neighborhood, that's the world you live in. And so I think the misconception with people like me who know a little bit different now is that there's a lot of people who are desperately trying to escape those environments. It's the world they live in, and a lot of people are comfortable with that. And I think when there's an awareness of something better or a desire to do something or you see something different, then it creates a conflict, uh, a crisis of beliefs. But if without that, it's the world you live in. So it's the norm, and it's, for lack of a better term, it's okay. So as you get into high school, and we all know the pressures of going to high school and all the stuff that's there, you're living in a rough environment. What kept you from going off into a rough lifestyle and not ending up where you ended up at? My brother and my sisters, no matter the struggle they had with drug use or crime or uh, underage pregnancy, uh, They said, we'll kill you if you ever catch you doing some of this stuff. (laughs) And they were serious because I had some rough ones. Um, But they looked out for me. You know, my family, as difficult a life they had, 
and with the poor decisions and the struggles that they had for some legitimate reasons and some illegitimate reasons, uh, they told me, not you. And I owe a lot to them for that. Almost as if you were going to be the, the savior of the family in some regard. They were kind of trying to shield you from their poor decisions. Uh, I think there are some issues that, you know, my family and I discussed at a later age that, that I was not aware of. But it, my oldest sister was a tremendous athlete. And she had trophies in the mayor's office. And I didn't know this, but she had dreams of going to the Olympics. But because of the choices of my mom and dad, uh, they took her away from Chicago out of the environment and moved her so that she had to babysit all of us and, and really killed her dreams. Never knew that. So she lived a lot of life, uh, a lot of her life uh, in anger at me because of the, I, I got the opportunity to do things that she always dreamed of. And so, but part of it, they just didn't want me to, to, to make those decisions. I, I could have made those decisions. It was the norm, but... You know, I thank God I heeded their warning. I just think God um, gave me enough sense to say, hey. And I wanted something different. I didn't want to live like that. I didn't. Uh, I wanted more. And and so that desire propelled me uh, into athletics, really. So we've alluded to it a little bit. You obviously were an Olympic athlete. Um, how did you get into the path of being an Olympian? My, my my goal in life, and people laugh at it all the time, but when you're a young kid and you don't have a lot going for you, one of the things you really want is a girlfriend. And wasn't popular. and uh, But I realized that if you become an athlete, greatly increases your chances. <laughs> and so I went out. I always wanted to play football. I always wanted to be a Pittsburgh Steeler, the greatest team in the history of football. <laughs> and didn't make football, went out for basketball, and didn't make it initially. I made the team later on in high school, but I basically was a bench warmer. And I went out for track and field, tried oh, every ho- bit. Hollis, I hate to interrupt you, but I think you're leaving out maybe a critical part of the story about your football experience. Well, I got cut before I even made uh, – coach told me to go home. I, didn't, I really didn't get a chance to try out. You know, I didn't pass the look test. <laughs> you didn't even get to put the pads on. No, huh? I, didn't get, I didn't get a helmet. I didn't get anything. My friend, it was so – I remember the day vividly. We all we walked to the school. We didn't have cars, and there was tryouts, and we walked. And I remember going down to the field with the coach with the clipboard, taking people's names. And he took my friend's name, told him to go to the locker room, took my other friend's name, told him to go to the locker room, and he told me to go home. <laughs> and I had to walk home while my friends went off and got their football stuff. Some friends they are, but no, nah, I, I got cut. I did get a chance to try out for basketball to get cut, so that was a great experience. <laughs> and uh, I went out for track and field and just tried every event, and the only thing I made the team in was a high jump. Now, now me, um, I'm not exactly what you'd call an athlete. So, but you jump, look a little husky. I do look a little husky. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. Um, so, you just tried them all, and you ended up at high jump. I couldn't imagine me actually going and saying, "Hey, I'm going to try this high jump thing." I couldn't. I can't jump over my own feet, much less. Well, you know, bar. I still find this true today. And you saying that, and you and you, I think you believe that, but. Everybody, when they go to the track, they go to the high jump pit and try to jump over the bar. I don't care how big you are. Everybody wants to play on the high jump pit. They may not be serious about trying to make the team in the high jump, right? but everybody high jumps. We have to run them off. But back in those days, you know, we what they did is they lined everybody up on the football field, and you sprinted across the football field, and they took the fastest one. Then they made you run around the football field, and they took the fastest one. So you just went through event 
event, and I wasn't making anything. I wasn't giving up. We got to the jumps. Lo and behold, I made the team. I think I was the second-best jumper on the team. We weren't really good at all. This is the eighth grade, and by the time I made the ninth grade, I was pretty doggone good. So you'd never jumped before, though? Nope. And did, you're just a good jumper, Just naturally. a good jumper. And so through your high school years, this is kind of your new passion now is this high jumping. It's my only passion. It's the only thing I made the team. <laughs> it's not, not like I had other options. But my freshman year, I I was pretty good. By the time my sophomore year, I was one of the best in the in the area. And so obviously there was a lot of success there doing track and got a little name recognition, get make the paper and and it Gr- opened girlfriend? up other possibilities. No, I didn't get a girlfriend until girl the senior. <laughs> you know, I had to be really famous. I wasn't working with a lot, you know. <laughs> So you're training through high school for high jumping. Do you win state? Do you, um, you know, do you uh, the junior national or anything like that? My junior year, I went to state in the high jump, triple jump, and long jump, and I won the triple jump. I was third in the high jump. In my senior year, of course, I was one of the best in the nation. So I went to some national meets, New Jersey, Florida, and I won the high jump and the triple jump again, and I was fifth in the long jump. And I had an incredible streak where I was undefeated in a high jump, triple jump, and long jump all the way up into the regional um, track meet. So I was I was really good by then, and I, by then I was getting attention from colleges all over the country. One of the things that I find interesting is when I look at athletes who perform at a high level is y'all have this dedication, uh, motivation, and this drive that I don't think people really appreciate. A guy like me, I mean, I'm not – I'm going to go out there and do the high jump or do anything else very well. And on top of that, I don't have the same kind of drive that I see the elite athletes have. Where does that drive come from? Is it a self-motivation? You know, you hear guys like Jordan who use criticism to propel themselves. How did you stay motivated in high school to keep working towards your dream? I think, it's my opinion, but I I think that Sometimes there's a misconception with drive and, and, and ability, especially in athletics because there's such, there can be such a disparity in talent level at an early age because some kids develop later, earlier. Some kids are in better uh, school facilities with coaching and, and, and uh, machine weight rooms and different things. But I see that there's a, there's a ton of raw talent that you can spot early on with kids. They're just faster. They can move and they can do things. But I think a large portion of them are relying on that talent. They're not working any harder. They're just that much better than so right. many people. Um, but there are cases where people put in a lot of effort. But it's hard in high school because a lot of those kids play multiple sports. Now, we're moving in an age where people specialize with AAU baseball and basketball and those things. But I think that's a function of the system and the coaching that kind of helps Got young man because we're still immature. You're still young mm-hmm. kids. You know, I I don't think I worked harder than anybody. I could just out jump anybody. I mean, just by the time I became a sophomore, I was better than everybody. Wasn't any special coaching or special technique. I just kind of plugged into what God built me to do, and and I worked out with without everybody with with what everybody else did. But what it did is opened up opportunities where people started saying. Well, you can now go to college and you're recruiting and you start thinking about different colleges 
And, you know, before I was thinking about trying to make it to the district and then you get pretty good, you say, I might be able to go to regional. Then I might be able to go to state. And you get to college, you start thinking, I might be able to win conference. Or I might be able to go to NCAAs. I might be an All-American. And so it's a, it's a step-by-step based on how much you know. Now, of course, today in the social media age where everything, you can find out anything and you know what's out there, kids can be driven by that. You know, you know what Jordan did in the records and you know what Steph Curry is doing. And as you begin to see those things, you begin to desire those things, those can be motivating factors for you. But for me back in, in the 80s, you know, you didn't have, you know, I think I was so excited when the beeper came out. You didn't have all this stuff. But I was just motivated to to be successful and to change my environment. And that's all I knew. Okay. And so when you leave high school, you did go to college or did you go to the Olympics after that? I went to college. I, I was recruited by a bunch of universities across the country. I really wanted to go to Texas A&M. Uh, because Jimmy Howard, who was the current American record holder at that time and the best American high jumper, I wanted to follow his footsteps. And the smooth-talking coach out of the University of Arkansas, who had tremendous success and a tremendous track program, he left Arkansas, became the head coach at Southwestern Louisiana, and talked me out of A&M to go into Southwestern Louisiana. And he said, you don't want to go there and be the next Jimmy Howard. Come here and be the first Hollis Conway. So he he had me, and he worked me, and I went to Southwestern Louisiana in my freshman year, you know, make the NCAAs and, you know, began to have all this success at that level. I think the the 1988 Olympics I went to, I I made it to the Olympic trials. I didn't think I could make the team. I was happy to make it to the Olympic trials, and I was out there having fun, and I finished second. Really didn't even know what that meant. Right. And – Went to the Olympics and just really enjoyed everything and ended up second. And I was just out there having fun and jumping. Had no idea what the Olympics meant, the ramifications, how hard it was, because I'd been successful at every level. And by the time, you know, I started being number one in the world and doing these things and realizing what that meant and what money I could make, by the time I got to 92, it was a whole nother ball game. I was the man and I was going to do this and I was going to do that and Man, we had bought a house, and I was married, had my first baby the day before I left, and ended up third on a tiebreaker. And that was so disheartening. Real quick, I've heard you say that before. How does that work, you end up third on the tiebreaker? Is it a coin flip? or No, no, no. In a high jump, you get three attempts at each height. You get three attempts to make it. So obviously, obviously, if a guy makes it on his first attempt and another guy makes it on his second attempt, you jump the same height, but the guy on his first attempt is ahead. If you don't make anything else, he has okay. the least number of attempts. And so, but then there's all kinds of other tiebreakers that, let's say we all jump, we jump seven, eight. All five of us jumped. It was five of us. They gave out a gold, a silver, and three bronze. We all jumped seven, eight. Two people made seven, eight on a first attempt, and three of us made it on our second attempt. So obviously, we were third. I got you. And the two that made it on a first attempt, one guy had no misses, and the other guy had one. Okay. It was really a sucky way of yeah. doing it. And I was. And I was favored to win. I was number one in the world, favored to win, and I got third. And so the passion and desire was to make it to 96 and be the only Olympian to go to three Olympics and win a goal on your home turf. And I blew my knee out in 1995, and it just started a whole other direction in life. So I want to go back and talk about the Olympics a little bit more, just the whole experience going to these foreign countries and being around the Olympic athletes. What's that like? 
Well, track and field is an international sport. It's it's the number two sport in the world. Now, you would never know that being in America because we're behind football, basketball, baseball, tennis, golf, hockey, soccer. But in the world, there's soccer and it's track and field. And so most of your competitions on an elite level, you're traveling to different countries because most countries put on a either a really big meet or there's a B circuit. And you can travel through Europe easier than you can travel through the United States. So during there's an indoor circuit and then outdoors, pretty much after the NCAAs, there's a circuit between June and then there's July. And so you're used to traveling different countries competing against the best in the world. And there's 50, 60, 70,000 people at every track. It's sold out like football games. And so you get used to that level of competition. And then when you step up at the Olympics, just the pageantry and knowing what it meant makes a difference because it's psychological. The great athletes understand it's still a track meet and you got a job to do. The the ones with less experience get caught up in what it means. Uh, the, the, the great athletes appreciate it after <laughs> they're finished. And so in 88, I had no idea. It was ignorance. I was just out there jumping. And I didn't know any better, and I finished second. Nobody expected me to do anything. I didn't, and and I finished second. But in '92, I'm number one in the world. I'm favored to win. I have all the strategy. I'm timing things, different things, and and I ended up third. And I really think it's because the mentality was different. Uh, it was all business the second time. I had a whole lot more fun the first time. And so there's a lot going into people who can enjoy the moment and. Um, We've, we've all put the work in. I mean, if you're at that level, you've put the work in, and you're ready. The difference is how do you handle it mentally? So you were at the Olympics with Carl Lewis then? He was there with me. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. So one of the- He made five Olympics. <laughs> so a good chance good he was chance. there with a lot of people. Right. He's the greatest track athlete. <laughs> He's won more gold medals than anybody. Of course, I think Usain Bolt may have caught him, but right. yeah, Carl had a span. Okay, so for my generation, when we look at Carl, I barely remember hearing about him when I was a kid. But now when you look back, because we didn't really appreciate anything he did, you hear about the the cheating. Right. Being at that top level, what was the temptation to to cheat, to circumvent the system, and to try to get that edge over your competitors, and how did you fight that off? Now, you remember, I'm old. So when I when I first started going over to Europe, there was still an East and West Germany and communist China and Russia. Right. And so the the struggle with regulating track and field is that you have people from different countries with different systems. There's no way you can get in. You still had Cuba. And, and so you got people all over the world. And back in those days, just like the now, now there, there was steroid use, but it was – it's nothing as complicated as what they have now. It was the old getting shots in the butt. And and so there's no way you can get in certain places and regulate because you just wasn't getting through. Mm-hmm. And so I think I heard that they just discovered, and I, you know, I think it was, was it Russia? That they discovered the the drug testing facilities were throwing out positive tests uh, for as far back as you could trace it so that the athletes could have a uh, an advantage. And that they were talking about, I think, I think it's Russia. I may be wrong, but I think they were talking about disqualifying them from the Rio Olympics. So it's been going on a long time. Mm-hmm. And when you're competing, you only have two choices. You get in there and you try to compete with them 
or you leave. Because the reality was there was nothing being done about it. And there were some people who, who got caught, but there was a lot more who were doing it. They knew were doing it. The Ben Johnson got caught in 88, but it was widely known that Ben had been doing it for a long time. And so I think what helped me is that I had been successful since junior high. I was competing on that level. So I never really needed it. You could just go back and track it. Just by the time I jumped seven feet two in high school. Well, my freshman year of college, I jumped seven six. So I'm competing on that level. So it wasn't much of a temptation for me because I was already competing on that level. And, and my dreams, although they were really big, they weren't as unrealistic for some other people. You know, if you want to be the first person to jump eight feet, it might be hard if you're jumping three feet. But you're already jumping seven six, you know, it's not that much of a stretch. And so that's what helped me and a lot of our competitors. Sometimes you can tell who's a little bit more legitimate if you track them back through their careers and you can see the progress and where they've been. Sometimes sometimes when people just come out of nowhere and then disappear, you wonder, okay, where'd that come from? Right. So you talk about the change in your focus from the first Olympics to the second. Um, did you kind of lose some of what you had going for you? You became more business-like. Did your, did your motivation or the the thing that was making you do what you do change? You went from enjoying the Olympics to I'm going to win the gold. It's very easy to speculate at this point and <laughs> try to figure out what went wrong. But I do know my mentality was was different. You know, an event like the high jump, and in any event. The technique and the science is not. There's not a large margin of error. Uh, when you compete at that level, the margin of error is micro thin, and so you can imagine in the high jump, you're looking at a bar that's, you know, two feet over your head. You're looking at a bar. Let's say you're jumping at seven feet eight. You're running a seventy foot approach, and you're running. You need to run at the right angle, come in at the right time, and everything has to work at a certain point in time. Well, if you if you're amped up and you just push a little bit harder on each step, well, now you're too close, and you have to make adjustments. And so from that standpoint, because I knew what it meant, I was a little bit more serious, a little bit more focused. Uh, I didn't just relax and compete. But that's just me thinking in hindsight. Right, looking back at it. I still jumped seven, eight, and, and <laughs> you know, only yeah. had two misses. Right. And, and I lost on the tiebreaker. Um, so could have been. Just one of those days, but I do know that the way I treated 1992 was very different from 1988. And you won a bronze and a silver, right? Yes. The first time you won the silver, did you feel disappointed, even though it was a new experience? No, and that's that's what I'm saying. There was no expectation. Nobody knew who I was. I didn't know who I was. I just made a team. I just went. I was just out there jumping. And at the end, I finished second. I had no idea, no awareness where I was in the competition. And I jumped the personal best, so I was really excited about that. And I don't know if I – well, I'm pretty sure I, I didn't really appreciate the silver medal as much because I didn't understand how hard it is to get there. People live their lives and never achieve it. People dream of going and getting on the stand, and I'm just out there jumping. So in 92, I knew that. I knew how hard it was. I knew the margin of error because in the United States, it doesn't matter how good you are. On that one day at the Olympic trials is when you have to make the team. So you could have the world's best mark, but if you have a bad day on that day, you don't make the team. 
So you know the focus is going in to make sure you make the team and to get there, and it's a little more strategic and it's and it's planned and and you know those things, and the competition, their strategy, which heights you jump at and what you need and what other people are doing, and so you know all these things, and you look back and think, well, that's a little bit different from '88. Well, I'm just out there jumping, and I'm not saying one is better than the other. I think you need to be aware of what's going on and have a plan, but I also think you need to have some fun. Uh, but it just didn't happen that day and I think a little bit I knew how serious it was it ramped up the pressure a little bit more and just made me even if I tried just a little bit harder you don't have that much room for error but at the same time they didn't out jump me <laughs> right. the same thing my first jump I missed I just started at 7-4 and right when I got over the bar they start they shot the gun for the 100 and I nicked the ball off with my heel and that cost me a silver medal right there wow after the Olympics, how did you deal with the the failure of not getting the gold, or did you view it as a failure after the Olympics? Yeah, I mean, and going back to the original question, in 88, I was ecstatic I got a medal. <laughs> and in 92, I was disappointed I got a medal. You know, I, I, I do a lot of motivational speaking, and, I, and kids ask me a lot about what does it feel like to win or to win a medal. And I said, it only depends on your expectations. Success is relative to what you expect. So if you don't expect much and you overachieve, you're really happy. If you expect more and you underachieve, then you feel sad. And so I, I remember this. The second, there's five jumpers left. We're jumping, and I think I was fifth in order. And so as you're sitting there in the competition, four people jump in front of you. They all miss. You're thinking, this is my turn to win. And you go in and then you miss, and you're like, darn, I blew that opportunity. So you have to kind of refocus, but you have to watch these other guys. Well, at seven, eight, two guys make it first attempt. And you're thinking, I got to make it. Well, then you miss. Yeah. Now you're thinking, darn, I got to make this, but I got to make the next height, and I need them to miss. Right. So that's what you're going through this range of emotions and strategy during the competition. So obviously, I have a big jump on the second one. I mean, because I, you got to make it. And now you're in it, but now you're thinking, okay, I got to make the next height. Well, they all miss. And then, then I miss. So you're going through this roller coaster. Well, on that last miss, that's it. I didn't think I had a medal at all because I had two misses. And so I was just, I was depleted. And I was really crying within myself and disappointed. And I remember sitting down, you can't leave because everybody's going to drug testing. You know, you're at the Olympics. You, you don't just walk out of anywhere. You have to wait till an official come get you. And at that part of the competition, you got to wait till the other two guys finish jumping. So you have to watch them. So I'm, I'm really disappointed because I've picked the win. And I, I, I was in shape to win, and I was there. And, and I remember the official came over, and she was checking our name, and I saw an E by my name. We're in Spain. I'm like, what's the E? And she said, tie. I'm like, tie? So I get a medal? I said, yeah, because they gave out five. I didn't think they would give out five medals. So then I'm like, I got an Olympic medal. And I was so excited. And then as you're walking out, you, the press is there. You got to do all your interviews, and then you go into drug testing. So I'm, I'm excited about it. I'm a little disappointed, but I've kind of recovered a little bit. And then walking to the award stand, I realized I blew it. These opportunities don't come around too often. I'm in position. I'm in the best shape of my life, and I blew it. And so I, I wasn't that happy. But then you get on the stand, and they're playing the national anthem, and you're waving, and you have a good time. But, so you go through a range of emotions, but it's based on your expectations. So you're going through this range of emotions, and you set your goal for Atlanta. 
That's yes. your, that's your next target. You're going to win it. Yes. In the good old US of A. Yes. And then injury after injury kind of gets you. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, training went well. The the pre-Olympic year, 1995, training went phenomenal. Lots of things going on in my life. I got married in 91, had a couple of kids, and life's changed. Now you had, add all these other dynamics. Before I was just an athlete. You get up, train in the morning, go home, sleep, train in the afternoon. You live an athletic life. Now I have responsibilities. House to take care of, family, kids, God, you know, it's different. So you're balancing all of those things. And But the training is going well. The first competition. Well, I just built the house. We we sold the house and we built the house um, about one-third of the size of your papa's house. Um, <laughs> size of your bathroom is what we built. So we built a house and some things going on and working on contract negotiations and with shoe companies and still not making a lot of money. But the first competition in East Germany snapped my patella tendon and my kneecap goes up on my hip. And it was it was a bad injury. And we had to have surgery immediately there in Germany. And we were in a West German town, but we were staying in the east because the wall had come down. But. It right. was still, you know, you could tell what side was what. And it was a traumatic experience, and I came home. But as it's, it's strange as it is, when you're a world-class athlete, you believe that you're invincible, and there's nothing. I was so excited about the rehab because I'm coming back. And so we rehabbed really hard, but I didn't make any money. All the contracts were gone. I didn't fulfill anything. And, and my one-shoe contract, they said, well, we can pay you your full salary and cut you for the next year, or we can give you half and half. So I took the half and half. So I had a little bit of money. And so 1996, the first competition, Miro's Games, Madison Square Garden. I jumped 7-6. I had the second highest jump in the world at the time. I'm back. But I started having Achilles problems, so I couldn't jump much, and I still hadn't made any money. And I go all the way into June, and I get to the Olympic trials. I'm hurting, but you can't leave. But I jumped 7-5 and a half. I'm in second place. And the guys behind me, you know, they're jumping at their personal best at seven, six and a half. And three of them make it on their last attempt and knock me off the team. And when I, because I, when I jumped and I hit the pit, I mean, everything went out of me. A side joke was that my dad went with me to the 88 Olympics and my mom went with to the 92 and my wife was going to go to 96. <laughs> I didn't make the team. <laughs> and I saw her in the stands and she was crying and it was it just hurting and but I hadn't made any money so I need to go jump we left from Atlanta went to Paris snapped my Achilles tendon on the same leg and I missed the rest of 96 and half of 97 and so now you're talking about three years with no income well now you got other issues happening because you had bills building up and credit card payments and trying to do those things so you're dealing with all that while I'm still kind of competing and the problem was I came back in 97 I jumped seven five and a half off two of the worst injuries on your jump leg. So I was close enough to be in world class, but not close enough to make any money. Yeah. And so I jumped really to 2000 trying to make it. And then the, everything under that foundation was so messed up that eventually I had to give it up. And But I, I think when you look at the stories of great athletes who don't end well, well, the thing that made them great is the thing that won't let them quit. I'm 49 years old now, and I can't do what I used to do. My body won't do it. But in my spirit, in my heart, I'm still that guy. There's, there's 
nothing in me that says I can't go out and do it. I just wise enough to know better. But I think what separates people who accomplish great deal and overcome great obstacles is that, that something inside of them that tells them you can do it. Nothing can stop you. There's nothing you can't accomplish. And if you don't have that, because life's going to throw some things at you, well, whatever you, sport or industry, it's hard. Success is hard. If you don't have that, you'll quit or people will talk you out of it. But when you have the internal drive, nothing stops you. And, and, and it's hard as you get a little bit older to realize you can't do those things. And if you don't have anything that can replace that, then you're going to live your life desiring what you had. And that's bad. I still think that Michael Jordan, he went out the greatest way you could ever go out, hitting a winning shot over the guy from Utah. And when he finished, there was nothing there. He had to come back. And when he came back, he couldn't finish. He went to baseball. Because there's an adrenaline rush. There's a thrill. And, and you, you need that. And if you don't have any anything else to fulfill you in life, you're going you're gonna to try to put something there. Well, I'm glad you brought that up. That's where I wanted to go next was. I knew that. That's why I said it. Well, thank you. Um, how do people balance that? How do they balance in life? Um, there's a lot of areas this applies to, whether you're trying to get that promotion or start your own business or whatever it is that, that you, you think, hey, I can do X, Y, and Z, and you push and you push and you push, and then all of a sudden you get to that spot, you have to decide, is it worth the sacrifice to keep going or do I just got to pick up and move on? And that's, I don't see a lot of people actually admitting that on a normal basis, unless you're talking about like a Michael Jordan or you right. know someone like that. But that's a lot of people actually probably struggle with that on how to decide when do they stop and when do they keep going. What would you say to someone that's trying to figure out, hey, should I keep going or should I stop? That's probably the one of the greatest issues that we face in society that, people don't talk about there's a lot of either ignorance or blatant disregard for the realities of success there's this whole misconception that you can be anything you want to be and do anything that's not true amy we're all given a measure of success we're all given talent you know what i could jump higher than some people there are people the majority of people will never jump as high as i i that i jumped but i meet kids every day to say man, I want to go to the Olympics, and I'm going to train hard. And, but in reality, they don't have the talent. They're not. And you can't, if you tell them you're not going to do it, that doesn't end well. And so, number one, I think there is a disconnect between reality and the dream world. You have to have an honest assessment of who you are and what your abilities are. Now, I still believe you dream big and you shoot for the moon, but you also have to have a reality of your gifts, talents, and skills and appreciate that. Because a lot of people want what other people have. The majority of people are not successful because they're not doing what they're built to be successful in. They're seeing somebody else's success and they're trying to duplicate it. And so words like balance, sacrifice, um, consequences, you have to understand all of those. People ask me, what's the one thing that you need to be successful? I say the one thing that you need is to realize that there's not one thing. It takes a variety of things. And who you are, you may need a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And so everybody's looking for the short, quick way. And so in order for me to have the success I had in track, I was single and no debt. 
and I and I can focus simply on track. I can go to practice. I can put all my. But when I get married, if I did the same thing, my wife is either gonna have to be incredibly understanding, or it's gonna affect my relationship. There's just no way around it. Because if you get married, you have to invest in that relationship, and so it's vitally important that you you become in relationship with somebody who's going in the same direction because if they're not, there's going to be a constant pull. Same thing with any job you're in, it requires this. And so if you're trying to be a millionaire and you're putting in 80 hours a week and you're doing these things, but you married them with kids, then there's no way you're putting time in with your kids. And so whatever happens is a result of what you did. So there's a price to pay that you have to, if you by yourself agree to pay it, but if you're in covenant with somebody else, you need to sit down and talk about that, what that looked like. You could maybe put a time frame on it. Okay, honey, I will give you these five years or what. But people don't do that. They pursue, a lot of people pursue the fame and the money without understanding the cost or what they're gifted at doing. And then a lot of people just don't realize that, care how good you are, you're going to reap what you sow. And if you don't spend time with your kids, then they're wide open for someone else to influence them. You don't spend time with your wife. Those type of things happen. And so I think success is what you by yourself or you and your wife and family decide what it's going to be. And you pursue that thing together. I, I really appreciate that answer. There's a there's a guy and I'm not going to say his name, but he's a successful businessman and has books and shows and stuff. And I listen to it. I learn a lot from him. And I see the people who follow him and they're trying to be like him. And this, this guy is working huge hours with a wife and two kids. Now that's his choice. Right. And there's been times where I've had to work huge hours or I've had to travel a lot. And that's, it's that, compromise. It, it's compromised. But his deal is this is what I do every day, 365, you know, pretty much don't take off. And if you want to be like me, this is what you've got to do. And he's being honest um, but I don't think people appreciate what they're actually giving up to try to do what he does, and they miss the fact that he's talented, prob- more talented than probably all of us that are watching his show. Right. And so, yeah, you could work the 80 hours, and you're going to have a measure of success, but we're never going to be that guy because there's only a few of those guys around for a reason. Right, and and that's what the world we live in today tells us. I mean, everything on the media, social media, you see the success. And kids and even adults, we want the success, but we're not shown the path. You know, great movie stars, you see them and you're like, man, I want to be like that. But if you track their record, they were acting since 16 and they were doing little commercials and doing things and that we don't know about. Everybody wants to be Steph Curry now, incredible shooter. But the number of hours that he puts in and the dribbling, and even if you don't have that talent, you could copy that, but you're not going to be that successful. And then you don't look at the cost. You have to, you know, how does that affect other relationships? And what are you called to do? And so that is very important. My wife and I are opposite. But my wife's from the country. She's from Sunset, Louisiana. And and she loves being a homemaker. She doesn't want fame. She doesn't do those things. And, and she... You know, down south Louisiana, family is close, and every weekend they're together, this and that. So if I went off for three weeks, yeah, she's oh, she's built like that. She's got a family. She's home. She she wants to be at home. She doesn't need all of that. 
it worked because we were meant to be together. But if I had a wife that, that said, listen, I need you here, well, then there's a conflict because now I have to decide, am I going to pursue this and come home and fight? Or it's just you people, you have to talk about compromise and goal setting. It's okay when you're by yourself and you don't have any responsibilities. But when other people come to your life, there's responsibilities and you have to compromise and realize that you may not be able to have that same level of success that you had had you had no other responsibilities or or you can have it, but you have to do it a different way because you have to invest in things and you have to do those things. I mean, we were creative. There were some trips my family could go with me. We made sure that that happened. So they got to go some places and go to California and do some things. And, and they were, but that was intentional because I knew that she was there, but I never had to worry about her uh, fussing because I was gone. She knew what I was doing. You know, now that I'm not jumping, she probably wish I was gone. <laughs> you don't have anywhere to go. <laughs> I like how you framed it, that you're in the family environment, that you and your spouse can come together and agree upon a goal, and you can define success yes. that way internally instead of looking for an external way to define it because um, the external ways that are going to be, be defined for you are going to be usually stuff that you're going to have to make a big sacrifice where you probably can't achieve because your skill set's lacking. Well, the biggest thing is that they'll end up being hollow, you know, Say you go to the Olympics and win four gold medals, but you come home, you have nobody to celebrate it with. You know, you all the days of your friends patting you on the back and going out and stuff, those get old. All of a sudden, you're empty on the inside. It's the same thing with people who cheat. There's, there's a difference between working really hard and accomplishing something. You've, it's like a kid that studies all night for a test and make an A, and the kid next to them don't study at all, cheats and make an A, and they don't get caught. But the one that study feels like they accomplished something. The one that cheated feel like I got away. It's an emptiness, and life can be empty when you don't pay the price, or you sacrifice important relationships for that. Then you have no real relationships at the end of that. So you can have great money, great rewards, and still live an empty, hollow, lonely life. You touched on something a minute ago where you talked about self awareness, basically understanding who you are, your strengths, your weaknesses. That's something I'm really trying to understand. Um, I'll give you a good example. I'm not good at paperwork. And so <laughs> I'm going to have an admin that does it for me. And, you know, people go, oh, that's kind of a silly thing. But no, that's a reality. I've got right. paperwork that's got to be done. Yes. And if someone doesn't help me do it over a long period of time, it's just not going to be done. That's just a, a glaring weakness. Yes. And, and we've kind of lost the capacity to embrace our weaknesses and say, hey, this is um, something I'm not good at. So how do you go through the process of self-awareness and saying, this is what I'm good at, this is what I'm not good at, these things I'm not really sure? How, how do you evaluate yourself and become self more self-aware? Part of it is people will let you know your weaknesses. <laughs> They'll tell you what you're not good at, um, especially if you're in a workforce. You know, I work for the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and there's many facets. I have to raise my own funds have to do the administrative stuff. You have to put on events. You have to visit schools and coaches. There's many facets to it. And if you're not strong in one area, it's going to show up some kind of way. When you're an athlete, coaches kind of help you identify that and or nutritionists or physical therapists. Um, you have the science behind it. But a lot of times in the world, part of it is that, number one, we're not self-aware. But number two, the world doesn't want you to be. I mean, if you expose something, they're going to, 
it's going to be preyed upon. I mean, you look at the elections, you know, they're, they're, gonna, they're not going to talk about what the other candidate's good at. They're going to find what they're bad at. Right. And, suppose, and then you're going to spend all your time trying to defend that, which, well, that's kind of the world does that in everything. Uh, you know, my wife and I have been married this year. It'll be 25 years. You know, if there's not trust, then really both people go through marriage trying not to admit their weaknesses. It's always the other person's fault. That's kind of the world we live in. And so you can literally go through life never really having to look or deal with it because you can always either blame somebody else or you can cover it up and you can get get away with having a measure of success, not ever having to deal with that because it's hard and it's scary and you don't want to admit it. But I found in my life, you know, a couple of things that is important because I'm in ministry and we go through all these trainings and they tell you, you need to be aware of that because that's where the enemy will come in and get you in the blind spots. And so I've had people help me through that process. But then also John Maxwell said, you had to be careful. He said that if you're a seven in one area and a two in one area, you can spend all your life trying to bring that two to about a four because that's all you're going to do, which means your seven going to come down to a four. He said, you need to make sure that you're accentuating your strengths and minimizing your weaknesses. But you if you're weak in an area, the chances of you making it a strength may happen, but predominantly it won't. And so I'm like you. I don't like to be in the office. I don't like that administrative stuff. I'm much better a people person. I want to be out there. But if that didn't get done, then the ministry suffers. So if I don't have anybody to do it, I have to find some kind of way to do it. I'd be miserable and not happy doing it, but it has to get done. And that's life is not a straight path. You Life takes curves and ups and downs. Success is not straight. It's, you know, you have success, failures, frustration, road detours. Success is just finishing. You start and you finish a little bit better than where you were when you started. From an athlete's perspective, I'm curious. I've, I've thought about this recently, talking about the self-awareness. If you watch a football, basketball game, and a team goes out and they get beat, the, the losing coach comes out and usually says something like this, well, uh, Team X played really good today. They, you know, made all the plays, but we didn't play our best game. And rarely does a coach come out and say, "No, we did our best." It's just the other team was better, without any any excuses, any reasons for why they didn't play their best. I think part of what we've learned from sports or been taught from sports, rather, is that it's always our fault. And so that kind of it's a little bit easier to take when we say, "Well, we messed this up," compared to saying. No, someone else is just better at it. What do you think about that? I think you can go both ways with that. In sports, the psychology is is big. So we don't know if he's psychologically trying to give a message to his team, if he's not trying to give a message to the other team that they're playing. As an athlete, you don't ever want to admit to somebody better than you. You know, uh, at that level. When you're playing at the top level, you know, Number one, you don't want to admit that someone's better than you, but at that level, you're so in tune with what your best is. And so those coaches know their team, they know what they're capable of, and at the end of the game, they can tell the points where they didn't they made the mistakes. So they can honestly say, we didn't play our best. Doesn't mean if they played their best, they would have won, but they you you know. You know what you're capable of. You've seen them. You know what they can do. And Rarely do you play your best. Now, there have been some times because we played exactly the best and and they beat us. But really, does everybody play perfect? And so, but I just think it's hard to admit 
publicly that someone's better than you. But I can tell you this, what coaches say to the media, completely different from what they <laughs> say to their kids when they get back into privacy. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> you know? But but as fans who hear that repeatedly, though, but, and they and come it, into their job and they see, right. well, Tom's better than me, but I could have done better. And I don't think that that's – I think the translation there is what – but even in a job, I would have a problem saying somebody better than me, even if they are better than me. Just saying those words just doesn't even feel right. But that's probably the athlete in me. But you're an Olympic athlete. Right. Though. But here's here's the thing that the big problem is that people are world watchers. They, they, they buy what the media is telling them because they've never done any introspection or self-awareness. So they don't even know what their best are is. And so what you're saying is exactly right from the standpoint that people – when you're an athlete, you have all this science and coaching and, and that you get, but who gets that in life? <laughs> you know, in the field or in your relationships, you know, we don't get that same desire and passion and information and who has the time because we're so debt ridden and we have to work hard and every, you know, the world has taught us to spend more than we have and, and then you get in a cycle. And so the issue is complicated because there's so many factors and people are trying to fix the one thing, but... You know, I go into school, then a poor performance school, and the kids are just performing bad, and they're saying, listen, you need to do two hours of homework for every one hour of class, and you need to do that. But if the home life's bad, then you have to go into social issues. And you get into social issues, there's all kinds of other reasons. But it all plays a part. And so in our lives, no matter how well you're doing, there's a plethora, if that's the right word. There's a, yeah. a wide variety of issues that, we, that, that make us come to the conclusions that we come to and our, our psychology and our mentality and the way we approach things. And so you may look at what somebody say and say, that's not right. And the other person it might motivate them. But I just, I just, even people who were flat better than me, I would more likely think I'm going to work hard and I'm going to get them. Right. Well, I, what I try to do, I guess, is I try to look at the areas, you know, as a business person, there's some, like, uh, I always like to say the technical work, you know, that we do at R-Square Global. That's not my strength. There are people who are better at it than right, me. Right. And even, oh, on, yeah. even on my best day, I'm just not as good as them. And so I, I need to kind of acknowledge that. Now, can I contribute? Can I be of help? Yes. But Ultimately, I don't need to focus there because the seven and two law thing you were talking about with Maxwell earlier, the law, the law of the lid, as right. we call it, um, you know, I, I don't need to focus there. And so I don't want to buy into this coach speak where, well, if I would do X, Y, and Z, I don't have the mental focus to go in there and spend all day in uh, a software adjusting points and lines and stuff like that. Um, but we, if we go all the way back to what we said at the beginning, though, you have to be realistic about who you are and what your gifts are. You know, my oldest daughter was a very good triple jumper. and But she was a triple jumper on the Sunbelt Conference level. There were girls, Texas A&M, Texas, UCLA, who were on another level. They're obviously better than her because obviously she jumps 40 feet. They're jumping 46 feet. They're tremendously better. But what she can do is get better at her level and the people on her level. And so she should not say to somebody that she's competing against on her level that they're better than her. But she can readily admit that, hey, they're, they're high jumpers now that jump seven feet. They have to admit that I'm better than them. Right. It's obvious. But there are other jumpers that jump seven feet. Well, that's kind of equal. 
you don't want to give in to that guy, of all things being equal. So it's, it's relative to knowing what your strengths and weaknesses are, which goes back to people don't know that. And so they have false expectations because they're trying to be something they'll never be, or they have low expectations because they're not trying to be anything. They're just settled. And so that, that works in every field academically. My, I had three daughters, two of them, they made high A's in like geometry and trigonometry. I mean, just, not like they study. They're watching TV doing math. They, they just know math. I had one daughter that struggled. We begging and tutoring to get a C out of the class. Well, they're better than math than her. They're better with numbers. And so that's okay if that's not your strength. But you better be really good at your strength. Because you only think about your weaknesses, you'll have a, a complex and your self-defeating attitude and I'm not good at this. But you're good at something. Let's find out what that is and try to be better at that. And so and that's the, the world is just all confused. It's an identity crisis. Absolutely. So you, you mentioned the FCA, so you work with a lot of uh, youth. Yes, coaches and athletes and students, teachers. And this is high school students, or is it going to college? Middle school, high school, college. Middle school, high school, college, okay. And are these uh, children, what kind of socioeconomic backgrounds are these children, and is it all wide range? or Every every dynamic you can imagine. We, you know, like I cover northeast Louisiana. So just say Monroe. Well, there's okay. 26 schools in Monroe that range from northeast Baptist to, to west Monroe, you know, from St. Fred's to start, every kind of dynamic you want to, from Richwood to Martin Luther King. So any mm-hmm. kind of social, economic, cultural, academic, uh, class, financial, you, it's, it's, there's no common thread. So you're dealing with people from a wide variety then, yes. which goes in good to this kind of question. Um, for the listener who's out there, who's going to be from any background, unknown, they're... They've got something going on. Everybody's got something they're trying to deal with at some point. What would be the, not the one thing. Right. Because <laughs> we already said we know what the one thing is. What's some good general advice that you would give to someone on, on how to keep going and how to evaluate? We've talked on a little bit, maybe a kind of a summary and a recap, anything you've left out to people who are, they're, they're going through life and they say, hey, this is a, a guy who's an Olympic athlete. What would you say to them? All right, I'm going to give you a little free portion of my highly paid speech that you're not paying me for, but I'm going to give it to you here. I use the Olympics as an analogy. When you go to, I think the Olympics is the greatest spectacle in the world. You can argue about Super Bowl and NBA championship. The Olympics is obviously the greatest spectacle in the world because you have the greatest athletes in the world from every country, almost every discipline, from ping pong to synchronized swimming, uh, in one spot. No other venue can say that. You have the greatest athletes in the world from every country, every color, every culture, every language, every discipline, every shape, every size, in one spot. And if you look at it from the outside, there's obviously differences. The gym, gymnasts are shaped a certain way. The dream team is shaped a certain way. Swimmers do one thing. Uh, tennis people do another one. It's track and field. Is, you got sprinters. You got hammer throwers. You go from vaulters to people running 5,000 meters. Just a variety of people who are the best in the world at what they do. 
And if you look at it from the outside, you can see that success comes in every shape, size, color, culture. Like they come from countries with, who are wealthy. They come from countries that don't have anything. They're, you can be successful. But what they've done is that they've identified where they need to be successful at. So it's the key. You can never be successful until you know what you can be successful at. So whether you're running a 5,000 meters or whether you're doing a, a high-platform dive, you need to know what that is. And then you just need to work being successful at that discipline. A lot of people work really hard, but they're not working hard at the things that they need to be working hard at. And see, when I'm an athlete, so I did athlete stuff. Athletes do athlete stuff, things. And then, but I was a track athlete. So I stopped going to basketball practice and football practice because there's a lot of good stuff happening, but those things are not specific to what I do. But although I'm a track athlete, I'm a jumper. So I don't go with the runners. I go with the jumpers. Well, I'm not a vaulter. I'm a high jumper. And so the more you can zero in, and that takes time and, and effort, you zero in, and then just a practice of sowing and reaping it. What you put into it is what you get out of it. You know, uh, successful people do successful things. Unsuccessful people do unsuccessful things. You can, it's not rocket science. And so if you're not doing the things that it takes to be successful, because in every field, whether you're a lawyer, a doctor, you're in pharmacy, criminal justice, there are things that you need to do in those fields to be successful. Do those things. And there are things that you can do that will kill a success. Don't do those things. So that's what I tell people. Find out what you're good at. Do the things you need to be successful and stop doing the things you don't. And it, it crosses. You can go into poor performance school. Hey, do you know what you need to do? You know what classes you need to take? Make good, do whatever it takes to make good grades and learn that information and pass. If you don't do the thing, you can in, insert whatever you want. Sex, drugs, violence. None of that stuff going to help you be successful. Don't do that. And so I try to simplify it for people and say, hey, know what you need to do. Do what you need to do. Well, Hollis drops the mic and walks out of the room. <laughs> Boom. Well, Hollis, thank you for coming on. It was good to see you again, even though you, you know, you're a little bit hard to track down, but that's because you're, I guess, an Olympic athlete and you know you're famous and stuff like that. Yeah, so I'm thanks for another take scrubs phone calls. <laughs> you will be receiving an invoice for this time. <laughs> well, Hollis, thanks again. I appreciate it. <laughs> you're welcome.